Our special guest on today's episode of our interview series is Adrian Loder, co-founder of Allegro Funds, one of Australia's preeminent private equity firms with a capital base exceeding some $4 billion of assets under management and a highly successful 18-year plus track record of producing outstanding investment results. Adrian, welcome to the series and appreciate the opportunity to share your insights. Before we get into your executive career, I want to learn and, and know more about your background. Tell me about where your interest in business originated from. Well, thank you very much for having me on your show. Um, like I'm a Canberra boy and like, uh, like I, I went to university and school in Canberra and then I came to the big smoke being Sydney. And I, I really started um, my professional career during the last recession in the early 90s. And um, there was only one type of job offer really going on at that point in time. And that was really insolvency. So I really started my business career working for Arthur Anderson's insolvency division, which was probably the booming part of Arthur Anderson at that point in time. So um, it was like it was a very interesting time because Australia really had no capital um, at all. And, um, you know, um, banks were basically insolvent. Uh, we were trying to dispose of assets um, and there was no buyers really for them. And of course, there was a lot of redundancies. So to be honest, I was so fortunate when I got a job because uh, I did an echo law degree. I think the vast majority of my colleagues who finished their law degree ended up as waiters uh, in, uh, in the early 90s. So I, I felt very fortunate. And what were some of the assignments that you were working on at Arthur Anderson? As I understand it, as you said, you were there for seven years initially in the insolvency division and then later joined the operating turnaround team. What were some of the deals or transactions you were involved in? Yes, yeah, so I did a whole, like, I, I was very fortunate. So I started off doing formal insolvency. So I did a range of pubs and um, real estate businesses. Um, I worked for a while on a big property fund, which had gone into administration. Sorry, liquidation at that point in time. And then like 1995, I, I got my, my, my break, which was ready to, to work into operating turnaround. So my career Anderson's went from formal insolvency to operating turnaround. And operating turnaround really meant cost cutting because I was in the, in the dark side of Arthur Anderson where I'd really kind of go into businesses and look at how they could reduce costs. And then that moved to financial restructuring. So I was fortunate enough to go to um, to Thailand when the Asian economic crisis occurred mm -hmm. and I helped start Arthur Anderson's financial restructuring business in Thailand and then I went to Brunei where I, where I ran palace building companies there for a while, water business, water, water companies, electricity companies, so I had a very rounded, rounded experience. And then then when, I, um, when I came back to Australia I did operational transformation so I worked, you know, helping change the back ends of businesses. So I worked in Aussie Home Loans, as an example. I did an assignment in there. I worked in universities, doing kind of tra helping transform them. I worked in a whole series of universities doing, doing, doing um, transformation there. So I had a really broad business experience, um, which, which really ranged across a whole range of different, um, you know, different aspects, including working in obviously in different countries where the culture was very, very different, especially in turnaround. Prior to Allegro Funds, as I understand it, you also launched a corporate advisory business known as Key Capital, which you ran right. for four years. Talk to us about, about this business and, and what it was about. What was its mandate or what, what sort of transactions did it work on? Yeah, so Chester Moynihan and I, we started um, 
Key Capital, and we changed our name to Allegro Fund. So Chester's background was um, private equity and my background was restructuring, and we thought there was a great opportunity to set up a, a fund um, really in that turnaround transformation space because like in the early 2000s, there was no one who was really doing that in Australia. Um, and to do, to, to do that, um, we, you, know, you had to start off as an advisor and look for mandates to try to actually build out your team and start to tell your story to investors who would hopefully invest in you. And we started, our original name was Key Capital, and then we changed that to Allegro Funds in 2008 um, when we actually you know, got our first uh, management mandate. Just before we, we move on, I wanted to ask you about Arthur Anderson, and it's been well documented, the, the collapse of Arthur Anderson over the years. But from your perspective as, as somebody that worked there, what, what made the firm so successful and such a powerhouse for so long? Um, well, I was very, very fortunate to be uh, working in the division I was in and uh, with the people who I, who, who I worked with. So, so many of the leaders of the, um, uh, the structuring community have come out of Arthur Anderson. So, Tony McGrath's Arthur Anderson, you know, um, if you look at kind of Cord and Mentha, they were, they were both partners at Arthur Anderson. So, you had a lot of, you know, you know industry leading people um, and Anderson's at the time was probably, you know, one of the, the, the top two restructuring firms in Australia. And so, I think one of the great things there is we got to work on a wide variety of mandates for a wide variety of types of clients. And, and really, um, Anderson's gave us a lot of freedom. So um, I was very fortunate to really be thrown into situations when I was very, very young and to kind of told to figure it out. And so, for instance, when I went to Brunei, I think I had 5,000 people reporting to me up through the structure and I would have been like 30. And so I think, I think insolvency and restructuring as a career, especially back then when there were more formal insolvencies and restructurings, was you, know, you got more experience than, than, than your age was worth. And you got to see a lot more. So you know, I think I learned a lot. And what I really learned was um, you know, how not to lose money and the importance of cash. Um, that was really what it actually really taught me. And that really helps us when we when we, when we try to turn a business around because the place you always start is cash. Let's talk about the launch of Allegro Funds. As you said, the business you established alongside Chester. Take me inside the, the relationship that you had formed. Obviously, it, it uh, began at, at Key Capital, but what was the, the opportunity that you saw for launching your own private equity business at the time? Well, the Australian um, private equity market was very different at that point in time. So. The Australian private equity market really started in the mid-90s, but the last time there was a recession in Australia was the early 90s. So almost all of the funds which started were growth funds, um, and uh, the more successful became leveraged buyout funds. And, but there was quite a large section of the market um, being this turnaround, distress, transformation part, which really wasn't being addressed by, by the incumbents at that point in time. So, Chester and I thought there was a real opportunity to start our a business and a real opportunity to kind of concentrate there. And so we started to fill out this space. And it's interesting that like the Australian market was just so you know, juvenile compared to the kind of um, you know, international markets. So for instance, I remember trying to do buy the debt in, a, in an administration as an example uh, of um, 
airport link. You know, the, the airport link which, uh, which goes from Sydney Airport through to the city. Well, that, that went into administration and we tried to buy the debt um, in order to actually control the administration to get the asset. And I remember the administrator at the time saying, you know, this is back in like 2005, 2006, like no banks will ever sell their debt. No, this is not the way restructurings are done in Australia. And then you roll forward you know, post GFC to like 2009, 2010, when you had a whole bunch of hedge funds kind of flying into Australia to, put, to do exactly that strategy, um, that the market kind of grew up pretty, pretty instantaneously. And like the major difference in the market today compared to the market back then was that um, Australia was a creditor-driven market, so where the banks controlled order the power and everything was done, all of the advisors were aiming to get gigs for the banks um, and the banks did lots of appointments to now Australia is much more of a restructuring um, turnaround market where the banks don't do appointments really anymore. You know, they're looking for alternative solutions, be capital or expertise to kind of come in and basically you know, save the companies prior to insolvency. And I think that's like, that's been the fundamental change in the market. And we were fortunate enough to start a business in 2004 and then 2008, and then the global financial crisis occurred. And then the market shifted towards us and we were you know, an established player, you know, an industry leader in a very small segment. And that segment has kind of blossomed over time. And what skills did you have that Chester didn't have and, and vice versa? What, made the, what makes the partnership so powerful today? So I, I really believe the reason why we've been successful is that we've had this very, very strong partnership. We're the same age, our backgrounds are pretty similar, um, our kids are the same, um, same age basically, um, and there are kind of many kind of similarities. So you never really had too much disagreement um, just caused by different stages of life or kind of different views of life. Um, and then, but if you look at our experience, like um, I had a lot of experience in turnaround and restructuring. Chester had a lot of experience in, um, in private equity and our contact base was totally different. So really you did have a scenario here of like one plus one equals three. And, uh, and um, you know, we've stayed together for a long time and it's like it's been a, you know, Chester's, my relationship with Chester has been a fundamental part of my life. And it's been, it's great that we, you know, we still get on very, very, very well. So the business launches in 2004 and then launches under the Allegro name in 2008 and that's Allegro Fund 1 to the tune of some $300 million. How did you go about raising capital in a GFC type environment? Yeah, so we were, we were very fortunate again. So, so what happened is we were trying to raise money in that environment and the, um, you know, the taps were, were being turned off. And um, there was a distressed fund called ABN AMRO Fund and um, the investors were unhappy with the performance of that fund and they replaced the fund manager with us. So we inherited a fully baked fund which was, had lot, lots of issues in the portfolio companies and we went around kind of turning them around. So we went from advisor to manager but we didn't have too much money to invest so we, our mandate there was just to work out and kind of get the most we could possibly get back for these assets, which we did for the three years. And then we went with those same investors. We, true, we, we proved that we could manage money. And now we, we, then, uh, we then went and did deal by deal investing, but we had a, you know, we had a track record then of, of, of managing. And then we just had to find deals on a deal by deal basis. And it wasn't really till 2014 
that we got our, our first real committed fund, which is when we raised $180 million uh, for Allegro Fund 2. But you know, if you think about it, you know, 2014, we'd been together 10 years as a team, seen quite a few deals, and that was the first time we actually got, really got committed funds. And so there's, that's quite a long apprenticeship in terms of being able to stay together as a team, be able to work things out, grow together, grow your skill base, and, uh, and also uh, provide a solution to investors who, who really wanted to exposure to this segment of the market. And I'd be interested to get your understanding as to why you focused on or why you focus on special situation type scenarios or the operational transformation or turnaround of businesses as opposed to leverage buyouts or growth mandate type investing. Yes, well, I think the market is more sophisticated and um, you know, our skill base is in a certain area. So I think from investors' point of view, I think it's better for investors to back people with a track record and a skill base in a certain area, rather than to back someone who says, you know, I can do everything. I can do a property deal one day, airport leasing deal the next day, and I'll leverage buyout, and by the way, I can do the stress. So, so you know, from a, I think it's, it, 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 from an investor's point of view, it makes sense to kind of back people with track records in certain areas. And what, from a, a manager point of view, you can actually kind of build out a team to basically do what you try to do the best. So what Allegro does is really we focus on, we call it active complex transformation. So we you know, get stuck in and we try to work with management teams to turn around their business. Uh, complex because all the situations we go in have got a degree of complexity and we are trying to solve a whole range of vendor problems. And the transformation part is because you know, our fundamental mantra is that we believe in better and we try to create kind of better businesses. And so we can build operating partner network, which kind of suits all of those kind of opportunities, as well as having a deal team who really concentrate on kind of managing the risks and looking for opportunities in those areas. And so we have operating partners which specialize in human capital, IT, transition, strategy, um, we're about to get data on board. So that we've got a whole range of different um, operating partners who can go into a business, um, as well as um, you know, help management teams you know, improve their businesses. In terms of the investment criteria, what are the, the fundamentals that you and the investment committee look for in a business before deploying capital? As a private equity fund, you know, the first thing you're trying to do is actually make a return. So we have our hurdle return. So we're, we're a private equity fund, we're trying to make three times money. And then really what you're looking at in the first instance is saying, well, is it in mandate? Is it, in, we'd look for Australia, New Zealand um, kind of companies. Um, we're trying to deploy somewhere, you know, $50 million up. And uh, we're looking for real businesses that have got a revenue of at least $100 million. So the first thing is, is it actually in mandate? And then the second kind of key, key criteria is, do we think we can buy it and add enough value so we can kind of make three times money? And then once you've looked at that, and there's, there's various ways you can do that. You can do that through structuring on the way in. You can do that through an operational improvement, you know, improving the business so it's actually worth more. And then ultimately, up front, you're trying to work out, if I transform this business, do I believe there's a market to sell this business and that someone's actually going to pay me an amount of money for it? that I make my targeted returns. From a transformational standpoint, where do you start when you've invested into a business? What is the, 
What does the strategy look like? I mean, obviously it depends on, on what business you've deployed capital into, but, but where do you start? Yeah, so I, I think the first thing is to actually understand what you've actually really bought. And you know, the first real thing is what is the capability of the business you've actually bought. So if you think about capability in terms of people, processes, systems, technology, you know, brand, uh, customer base, um, employees, um, and you just kind of run a diagnostic and say, okay, where, where is the business weak? Where is the business strong for what it's actually really trying to actually do? So one of the first stages is just understanding what the business is. And then the transformation part is all about, well, if I want to move it from here to here to, to do something greater, well then how do I how do, I do that? And you know, Allegro is a, as a manager, so our role is not to be the management team. So what we do is we sit on the boards, we you know, recruit other directors to come on those boards, we recruit a management team um, in order to, um, to implement what we think is a strategy to create that business, which we think is exitable in three to five years. As I understand it, Allegro also has a, a long-held approach of working in collaboration with existing management teams, which you sort of alluded to there. Obviously, that's in contrast to some other private equity groups, particularly overseas private equity groups. How do you, how do you go about implementing that approach where you've sort of got some new management that you want to bring on board, but they also have to integrate with the existing management? Um, well, first of all, I think everything always comes down to who are you actually ultimately backing. So, um, so um, you know, if you look at Toll as an example, so you know, we bought Toll last year. So Toll is a corporate carve-out. It's called uh, Toll Global Express. It's one of the three divisions of Toll Group. And we bought um, one of those divisions. So it came without a CEO, CFO, Chief Information Officer, Chief Customer Officer. All the systems were largely Toll systems. And the reason why they selected us as the acquirer is that you know, they believed that we could help meet their needs in terms of exiting toll in a way which met, uh, in a way which helped them operationally, but also in a way which kind of represented their own values. And so when we go about building a management team, so there we partnered with Christine Holgate, who's our CEO of Toll Global Express, and there we are rebuilding the management team. You know, Christine's obviously leading the charge, but we, are, we have our operating partners who went through the business and said, well, we've got capabilities, holes here. What are we going to do? How can we really assist Christine build her team? And so we have this very kind of collaborative approach of you know, what are we actually really building and, and how are we actually really focusing on trying to actually you know, build a business over a number of years. So you know, the first kind of key stage of that is to, you know, you've got to get your customers wanting to stay with you, you've got to get your employees wanting to stay with you. Um, and you've also um, you know, got to start to build capability in a way which, which kind of works for the situation you're actually really in. So there's like a lot of thought and a lot of planning which goes into how you actually do that. And like we were fortunate enough, as I say, Christine is a marvellous communicator. She's been great at kind of getting customers on board, great in terms of turning the culture around so that people want to work for Toll Global Express. So, you know, turnarounds are a lot easier if your staff actually want to work there than if they hate you or hate the company. And so Christine was marvelous at 
really kind of putting passion back into the workforce. And you know, our, our customer net promoter scores went up like 20 odd percent, um, even though we had no system changes, just because people cared more and people did more because they wanted the company to do better, which I think is really a marvelous test, uh, testament to kind of Christine's skill. Clearly one of the major considerations that firms have to resolve is, is whether to pursue organic growth or growth by acquisition. Do you have a, a preferred method? Um, not really. I think it's, it's really, um, you know, it's very hard to do growth by acquisition if your capability is not great. You know, it's very like to try to solve your numbers by buying something and putting something which is pretty good under something which is poor is probably not the best strategy you can, you can, you can do. So, you know, if you are having a buy and build strategy, you really want to, you know, build yourself and your capabilities to be able to manage that. So for instance, like in some of our portfolio companies, we have done buy and build strategies. And like last year, for instance, in Questus, we bought a range of businesses and some of our operating partners sit with the management teams to help them integrate those businesses into, into the greater Questus group. Um, but that's a deliberate strategy. And so in other, other times we, we, we don't buy things, we just focus on how do we improve our customer experience or our, our underlying systems to actually kind of grow, grow that way. But I think the real important thing is you will need to have a, have a strategy. And what I always find the easiest, especially in turnarounds, is you have kind of like three very clear stages and you separate the stages. So in the first stage, you know, it's all, all about cash and ensuring you've got enough cash and it's the stabilization piece and it's the building kind of capability piece because you don't want to run out of cash and you, as you kind of um, are rebuilding that. And the second stage is all about um, profitability and kind of cash conversion. How do you improve the profitability? How do you improve your operations? How do you improve your customer uh, proposition? Um, and a whole range of things there. Then the third stage is about growth and about how do you buy things to position it or buy things to enhance the business. But it's always hard if you don't treat it in those stages because if you start buying things when you're still at that first stage, then you just create headaches for yourself. Um, or if you try to grow too fast and you can't fund it, that's kind of creates difficulties for yourself as well. So. I find it a lot easier if you break it into those kind of sections. So even if a great idea comes along, you can say to, to buy something, you say it's a great idea, but the truth is we aren't ready for that kind of great idea. From a risk perspective, what are the key inputs or considerations that are made internally within Allegro and does your appetite for risk remain consistent or does it fluctuate depending on market conditions? Risk is, risk is very tricky um, because when you're buying something, you know, you don't really know what you're buying. You might know 85%. Uh, you obviously do a whole range of DD, uh, due diligence before you buy it uh, in order to kind of mitigate your risk. But you know, depending on the circumstance and depending on the quality of the, of the business, you're trying to work out what those kind of true risks are. And, and the truth of it is that you know, there's always a hundred things kind of saying if you're buying a business don't do it and then there's a hundred reasons saying do it and only time will tell about which one's actually right and so you can always talk yourself out of doing something and um, and emphasizing the risk and you can always 
always um, talk yourself into something uh, by taking on that risk. And so I think the real way you actually approach this is by having an investment committee structure where everyone feels empowered to talk. And you know, we consciously kind of put a black hat on someone and their job is to kind of call out everything negative they possibly can. And then so that you're not, everyone's not swept up in ignoring the risks, but you're always, you try to have a balanced conversation. And the other really good thing that we've done, and I think this works really well when you have founder-led private equity businesses, is you know, what we do is we get the investment committee, they have their meeting prior to, um, to the actual meeting so that someone can give all of the questions, which is a shared view of what all the risks are, to, to, a, to a deal if, a, if there's a founder involved in the deal. Because you, want, you don't want to, take, you want to take the personalities out of it where you don't feel empowered to tell me that I'm wrong um, about something. So you want to have structures in there so that all these risks can actually be talked about in a mature way and acknowledged and therefore you know, decided whether you're going to accept that risk or kind of try to structure it in a different way or manage it in a different way. So you know, I think there is a really big focus on risk. If you look at the last two years and the next kind of couple of years, there's been major change in the market. So if you look at the risks, they're all kind of totally changing the whole time. And what people thought were the major risks a year ago are not the major risks today. And so what that really leads to is you need agility in your in your decision making. And when you have a, have a portfolio company, you need to have agility inside your decision making for that portfolio company so that portfolio company can actually manage its risks. And, and so we think about that a lot. So what we, what we have every, for every portfolio company is we have these like at least twice year reviews of what's the investment plan, does that still make sense? Like at the moment it's all about inflation and pricing and know all of these margin erosion things which we think are about to occur how are we actually preparing ourselves and that certainly was not on the agenda like a year ago as we there's probably much more COVID orientated risks are there any immediate red flags that stand out when you're evaluating whether or not to buy a business um, yeah well the first one is that if the business has never made money it's probably not the greatest investment you know and um, if it has made money and it's lost its way, there's kind of a, a way better place to be than if it's never ever made money. And, and I think the second, the, the second big red flag is probably, does its customers hate it? And if its customers hate it and um, they're over it, it's very, very different to the customers you know, uh, want the business to do better in the future and they're prepared to support it. And, um, and so those two things. I think the third thing is, do you have enough customers? Like a lot of businesses get started up, but if there really aren't enough customers for it and you're searching for customers, I think that's always a very, very hard place to do a turnaround as well. So, so I think those, those three things are things that, that really kind of focus, focus our mind. ESG has become a more important issue, especially, and so where we are as a business is we take on ESG impaired businesses, shall we say, uh, with a view of trying to make those those um, those businesses better. But I think the you know increasingly what's going to happen is that ESG is going to be a very important criteria for buyers of businesses, especially if they're institutionally backed, 
And so you really have to sort those um, ESG issues out as well. The other component of private equity and specifically of Allegro funds that I wanted to ask you about was the exit process. How do you go about determining the ideal time frame in, in which to exit an investment? Yeah, so I think f like all other private equity funds, to be honest, all your businesses are always for sale at the right price. Um, we, we think a lot about exit, especially like in this volatile market that we're in at the moment where what was hot last year may be hot in two, different in two years' time and the buyer universe actually may, may be different. So there's really kind of two different parts to it. One is you want to actually create the best possible business you can with the, and so that really ignores the exit process. But the second kind of key part to it is as part of your investment plan, you want to have a very clear view about when you're actually seeking to exit. And so when you're thinking about when you have to build capability, the extent of that capability, um, how our buyers going to actually value that capability are all very, very important. And we kind of restart thinking about that right from the start. One of the other things I wanted to ask you about was the key learnings for the business. So the first fund was in 2008 and then there's been three subsequent funds. What have you learnt over that journey? Are there any mistakes that you made or any things that you're doing now that you wouldn't have done back then? Well, lots of things, right? Like, um, I think we're a learning organisation and to be the truth is I learn something pretty well every day. And um, what I thought I knew then is probably about 30 or 40% of what I kind of know now. And the depth of solution. So um, I, I, think, I think the big changes over the last 15 years is the role of technology um, if you, and the role of data and the role of the kind of the, the customer proposition because you know, everyone's got a phone in their pocket. That phone, you have apps. Um, the companies which are gonna do increasingly well are the ones who have got, you know, um, a great customer proposition that people can respond to easily and have a very, very kind of clear value proposition for their customers. Um, you know, 10, 15 years ago, you know, iPhones didn't exist. And so the customer proposition was a lot broader. And so when we think about transformation, we probably, I probably started 10 years ago just thinking about the balance sheet and just, you know, I came from a cost cutting background. You know, let's let's cut our costs or, or do something. Now it's way more focused on how do you build a better business, how do you improve capability, what's the customer proposition, and how does that really hang together in terms of profitability. Just in terms of the change in landscape for corporate Australia, is there a lot more businesses to invest in these days than there was, say, a decade or two ago? Um, well, I think there are because there's more money floating around and there's more people buying and selling businesses. I think, there, I think there's a couple of real, real changes. So, and I think they're about to happen. So if you look at, even though we've had volatility in the last kind of couple of years, people who have done nothing with their underperforming businesses have probably been rewarded because you had the government putting stimulus in, um, you know, people's profits went up, um, landlords gave them a break, you know, tax office gave them a break. And so you had, now, people have been generally re rewarded because of the economic circumstances. Now you have almost a reversal of that where you've got tightening of interest rates, higher inflation, you know, probably lowering of margin, you know, um, potential drop off of revenue if you know, consumer spending reduces. And, um, so the real question for corporate Australia is that, what, especially in these troubled assets, 
is, a, is and, and for banks as well, is going to be the strategy of really not doing much, just letting it play out, which has been a successful strategy over the last five years. Is that going to be the strategy which wins for them over the next five years? And I would suggest that no, you've got, you're going to have as much volatility, if not more volatility, probably next kind of couple of years. You don't know where that volatility is going to come from, but I think that people's, you know, other stakeholders' appetite for accepting that risk is probably going to be reduced. So I, I think that's going to be a change which is going to happen in the next couple of years. I think the other major change is ESG. Like you roll back 10 years ago, no one really talked about ESG really. It, what, what risk really meant was audit. You know, now kind of it's way, it's way further than that and environmental is very, very important as is social, as is governance. You and the team must look at 100 to 150 deals, I presume, per year. When you're looking at these businesses and, and looking at these deals, what are the most common mistakes that you see businesses make? Is it that the management's not competent? Is it that they don't focus on cash flow? Is it something else? Well, I don't think there, is, there are common. I mean, even in booming markets, you have underperforming companies. Um, so you can always say there's a management issue. Um, and then when, when you have sector disruption, you know, there has been difference of risks, risks, risks taken. So if you look at the big one at the moment, it's obviously building companies who did these fixed price um, you know, housing starts as an example. And three years ago, that seemed like a good idea, but in a high inflationary environment where you can't get building supplies, those risks have been totally kind of, totally different. And so they're all in trouble as a consequence of that. Now, you look back three years ago and said, did they make a mistake? They only made a mistake really in hindsight. And so, um, but because no one really saw those risks at that point in time. So if I look overall, I think, no, I actually think the Auden Risk Committee is a very, very important committee. And how you think about risk in terms of your strategic risks, you know, your, you know, your customer risks, your kind of your internal risks, um, you know, your financial risks, are you overexposed? If you have a really, really good sense of what your true risks are, which is changing over time rather than just a set and forget exercise, I think boards become a lot better suited to kind of focusing on what the risks actually kind of really are that they're facing. I think that's especially the case now because volatility is really increased and the risks are coming from left field. Let's close out our discussion with four or five questions to finish. In particular, Allegro Fund 2 in 2015 is now closed and, as I understand it, invested in six businesses across Australia and New Zealand. What were some of the success stories arising out of that fund? Well, the best one, like I was involved in the GAN, so we took the GAN from a, um, from a, a transportation business to a luxury tourism business and that was like remarkably successful and that was really uh, positioning the business around um, like the customer experience and trying to create something great and people, you know, they believe in transcontinental railway journeys as something absolutely myst mystical and, and wonderful about them. And to be honest, being part of that, 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 that turnaround was just kind of wonderful because it's not often you know, when you do a turnaround and you try 10 things that like nine things work. And that was certainly the case there. 
I also want to ask you about Allegro Fund 3, which was oversubscribed with a final close of around $390 million in late 2017. Walk us through some of the investments that were made in, in that fund, and I think Toll Global Express was one of them, and perhaps Best and Less as well. Yeah, so um, we, we bought a range of businesses. So we bought industrial services business um, in Fund 3. We, we bought a higher education business in Fund 3. Um, we bought a, um, uh, a, a shoe retailer in Fund 3 and, um, and we, we, we bought Toll. So if you look at it, they're, more, they're all across a range of different, different um, segments. I think, um, I think the unifying part to them all was they've all been, uh, we focused on how do we transform them in a much more orderly way. So that's when we first really got our operating partner network up and really with our goal was how do we transform businesses fast and how do we actually partner with those businesses to actually really add value. And you know that is something we're really concentrating on and that's re one of the reasons why we're trying to increase and improve our operating partner network because I think it's a genuine, you know, Allegro can genuinely bring differentiation by bringing skill sets as well as capital. So we, we actively look to partner with um, with people to say we can help you solve your solution by bringing both capital and expertise, which is more than just financial expertise. So I was involved in like a number of those deals. Um, and like best and less was 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 super interesting um, because it was um, a corporate carve out, um, and also there was a restructure which happened initially. But even the transformation of best and less, which was a good business into a babies and kids orientated business was, you know, that was a wonderful part, you know, it was great to be part of that as well. More recently, Allegro Fund 4 was close to the tune of some $750 million of committed capital featuring 19 new investors and had a 93% re-up rate from the previous fund, which is an extraordinary achievement. I, I won't ask you specifically about this fund because I know you've spoken about it before. I want to ask you about some of the, the war stories, some of the most interesting case studies or businesses? Give us a, an insight into what it's like being in, in private equity. I think um, the great thing about private equity is that you get to see a variety of, of, um, of opportunities. And I think the great thing about being involved in turnaround private equity or transformation private equity is that you can actually get actively involved in, in transforming businesses. So. If I look at a, at a, at a if I try to, try to broadly generalise, so in a, in a growth deal, you, know, you have an established management team with a hero CEO, with a clear strategy, and that um, you know, uh, funds are investing in those businesses um, and then trying to improve them. In turnaround private equity, there may be no management team, no strategy, um, no clear direction, and you actually get a chance to really get actively involved and bring really interesting people and people who can really contribute a lot into those companies to help transform them for the better. So I, I think I've been enormously fortunate that I've you know, pretty well worked in most industries um, and I've been involved in working with great people and, and transforming businesses. So when I look back, I go, wow, you know, I've had a role in that and oh, that's interesting. They're still using the same logo that we talked about in 2014. And, no, so it's kind of like it's very, very re rewarding because you can see that you are creating kind of great businesses. 
And and just just on that, is that how involved you get in private equity? You you even consider things like logos and perhaps mission statements and vision statements. It's not just about all the dry financial details and management teams. I talk about Discovery Park. So Discovery Park, soon we took it over, was we took it over as part of the ABN AMRO business, and it probably had an equity value of minus fifty million, and. Um, we did a, a financial restructure of that business. And so that was 2008. 2010, we did a financial restructure of the business. We brought on some other financial partners. And then SunSuper, uh, who is now Australian Retirement Trust, they, they bought that business in 2014. And they gave us the mandate to help, help manage that business. So I've been to, I'm gonna go 65 of the parks um, in that business across Australia. Um, you, know, you know, we can talk, we can talk in detail about that business. Uh, and I think the challenge is that um, because we've been involved in that business for probably for so long, we know as much as, we don't know as much, we, we have a, a firm view about the, the business. Now our challenge really is when we know quite a bit about these businesses is that we aren't management. Our role is to actually help management achieve a better outcome. So on that business, as an example, we have a technology director, we have a, a branding marketing director on there. We've just recruited a human resource director on that business. We've got a, one of Australia's great kind of tourism leaders in Grant Hunt on that board as well. So we've established a board there with, um, to help, which can really help that business kind of prosper. And that business has got you know an equity value of over a billion and you know, it's kind of going from strength to strength today. And so, like, it's really, it's really interesting to see how do you, you know, first of all, create a management team and then how do you enable that management team to prosper because your style as a private equity director at the start and turnaround is very, very different to the style today because the needs of that company were very, very different because it lacked capability. Now it's got heaps of capability and really what you're trying to do is actually provide as a kind of advice rather than trying to direct. So when you're looking at a business and you referred to Discovery Parks there, but in the case of say the Garn or Best and Less, do you and the team say travel on the Garn before you board to see what yeah. the experience is like? Same, you go to the Best and Less yeah. stores, have a look around, see what's happening, how they manage. That's right, absolutely. Like what I found really interesting about the Garn was, so I went on it and I thought, this is a pretty average experience from a customer's point of view. Then I went and read all of the customer feedback for the trip I went on. The customer feedback was better than the trip I went on. And I think it was people wanted to believe. They, they told their friends they were going on it, they'd put their money down three to five months earlier. They went on it and they went on it and so they wanted to believe. Um, and so really part of that transformation was, you know, as I was saying at the start, if you've got customers who want to believe, that's fundamentally different to no one wants to go on the gun. And so, you know, really focusing, just changing the whole, uh, and the really interesting part about it was it was strategically confused because it was getting government subsidy. So when we started, it was a transportation business, which basically meant that the government was paying you to go from A to B. And so as a transportation business, you want to go as fast as you possibly can. At the same time, they were supplementing that by saying we want a tourism business, which is we want to stop and allow people to get dusty and have adventures. Now those two, people wanting to go slow, people wanting to go fast, 
you know, you cannot get the right customer experience. And so by, and the, and the bravest decision there was to say, was to buy it knowing that we were going to, we weren't going to get the government funding going forward. So you're buying a business which automatically became loss making because you weren't doing the, the transportation part of that business and you had to slow it down and focus on the customer experience and then really kind of build up revenue and build up profitability from there. And so, you know, that was probably a leap of faith because you can't DD that really. But what you can do is say, you know, I've been on the journey. I think this can work. I've spoken to people who, who've been on it. I've looked at the business and, and I can really work out how, how to make it a, a, great, a great business with strong cash flow. But most importantly, do I think, you know, customers are actually going to want to do that. We're out of time, so we'll finish on, on this final question. You've done countless deals across your career. What does it take to be an effective deal maker? And are there, say, two or three pieces of advice that you can pass on to people that are either looking at private equity as a career or thinking about launching their own private equity fund? Okay. Well, the first part is um, I think there's, I think doing the deal is relatively easy. You know, um, if you just look at it, say you hold a business for five years, you know, and let's say there's 10 board meetings a year, there's 50 board meetings, um, and to do a deal might take a couple of months, but then you're in for the next kind of four and a half, five years, right? And like private equity is very easy in hindsight when you've made money. You know, everyone says, oh, that was nice, gun. That was a nice deal, everyone could have done that. But the truth of the matter is that the real hard thing about private equity is when things go wrong and they do go wrong and it's resilience. Resilience, I think, is the number one characteristic because when things are going wrong in a portfolio company, you know, you've got heaps of problems, you go to bed, you wake up at three o'clock in the morning, you're thinking about those problems. The next day you go into work, you try to resolve those problems. Those problems do not go away. You know, wake up at three o'clock in the morning and you do that whole cycle over and over. And when things go wrong, private equity investing is a pain which kind of keeps on giving. No, there is no easy and quick solution. So those building companies I was talking about earlier, which you've got fixed price contracts, there is no easy solution to that. They can't kind of wish that away or hope that someone's going to bail them out away. No, that's not the way the world works. So, so I think resilience is like a very, very kind of key part to it. And and I think, you know, I think the real difference between an advisor and a private equity professional or anyone who owns a business is the care factor. Like when you're an advisor, everything is throughput, professional throughput. You give your advice, they take it, they don't take it. That's interesting. Um, but, you know, you move on to the next job. When you are a director, you know, you care, you care about your reputation, you give your best advice. And you, um, but when you are... Um, the financial sponsor and people were looking at you and you're putting money in, God, you care. No, the care factor becomes like 10 times. And the other real difference is people listen to you. So as an advisor, you can give your advice and no one listens to it. That's the way it goes. No, as a, you know, when you're at the other end and, you're, and you are representing the money as a director, people listen to you. And so, you know, if you give a view, you know, you've got to be pretty clear about your view. And so, you have to be clear about, have to have resilience, and you've got to be not scared to make a decision, especially when it's all murky. Um, that's a very, and now, doing the deal, 
you know, is, is quite different. You know, the real skill sets in doing a deal is, um, you know, do you think you can win? And how do you win? Versus have you got a good deal? And is there something you actually really want to buy? And so you can always buy something which no one wants. Um, you can always, you know, wish, hope to buy Apple, but Apple is not for sale. You know, so, you know, there is a, uh, you know, as, a, as, a, as an investor, there is quite a lot of kind of skill involved in getting yourself in a position to win, but also, you know, not over committing so that you are ignoring evidence about whether you should win or, or you want to win. And so I think, you know, Chester said last week that some of the best deals you ever do are the deals you never do. And I think there's quite a bit of truth in that. And, um, and sometimes you obviously wish that you'd gone a bit harder and you'd bought it when you know that it was success, success for three years later. And you say, okay, that one got away. But the truth of the matter is that you didn't know that at that point in time. Um, so I think that's, that's part of you know, being a private equity person. But I think you, the, other, the other part to it is that you know, the work never goes away. Like I can't really turn off my phone and just kind of go to the Bahamas and say kind of see you in two weeks because decisions have to be made, things have to, have to occur. So I think you only want to go in this industry if you actually want that kind of lifestyle as well. And that means you need a good support network around you because if your support network isn't prepared for you to be that selfish, you know, well then it's, you know, it's not going to work for you either. I think the other kind of key parts to it is that it's a long-term career because the way the fund structure works and the carry structure works is that you, know, you have to be in the fund and you have to want to work for the same fund for probably at least seven or eight years for you to actually kind of make, kind of get the profits of your work. And so if anyone wants to join a firm, they should be thinking about, is this what I actually really want to do? Not, oh, it sounds interesting. Like, that sounds great. It should be, is this what I genuinely really want to do? Am I prepared to kind of earn it? And do I really want it that much? And then you choose a firm where you actually get on with people because you probably want to be there for like 10 to 15 years rather than just be there for a couple of years. So I think, you know, there's some of the things I think about if I was wanting to join a firm. Now, in terms of starting a firm, well, I mean, it's like hard. No, you got to be, you know, you, you really should not underestimate how hard it is because, you know, so for our first fund, I think Chess and I, we had nine investors and I pitched, or Chess and I pitched 250 times, right? So we got rejected 241 times. Um, and um, so like there, and we had a team and we already had management and we had some deals. And so if you want to get institutional capital on board, like no one actually has to choose you. No, no one has to. And you know, you're new, so there's high risk in them choosing you. Um, so I think, it is, I think it is very hard to start a private equity fund because I think there's genuine barriers to entry and that's all to do with kind of investor appetite. Um, so, um, so if you want to, if people want to do it, I think they've got to be very clear why they want to do it. And do they think that they can succeed, honestly? Um, not that it sounds like it's a kind of a good idea. Adrian Loder, fascinating discussion. Thanks so much for joining the program and, and sharing your insights. 
Thank you.